This morning, we're back in our series in the Gospel of Mark. It's a pretty short book in the Bible, at least as far as the Gospels are concerned. It's pretty short and snappy. Uh, this morning, we're looking at the topic of relationships and marriage. Now, I know in this church, uh, since we've started, we've had a lot of people in this church who are not married. If you're here and you're not married, I don't want you to tune out. I don't want you to think that this morning is not for you. In fact, I would like to think that there's going to be a lot in what I'm going to be bringing from the Bible this morning that is for you and that is going to help you. So no matter what your relationship status may be, I certainly hope that that applies to you. Before we get into that, a quick book recommendation, if I may. Whether you're married, single, separated, divorced, whatever your relationship status may be, I cannot recommend this book enough. It's called The Meaning of Marriage by Tim Keller with his wife, Kathy Keller. Some of you may be familiar with a book that he's written called The Reason for God. Um, If you're wondering about Christianity or are just starting to explore it a little bit yourself, um, the book, The Reason for God, is an excellent one for you to check out as well by the same author. But um, on what I'm going to be speaking about this morning, I would really uh, encourage you to consider picking this book up, The Meaning of Marriage, um, as just an excellent foundation for relationships, marital or otherwise, uh, but as, as a good biblical grounding in God's heart for relationships. So that's a little bit of background. So this morning we are in Mark chapter 12. We are going to be looking at verses 18 through to the end of verse 27. And I'm going to invite Morag to come up. She's going to read these verses for us. If you don't have a Bible with you, the lyrics, uh, the lyrics, the words... <laughs> The lyrics, we just, this is our hymnal, we should just sing this. Maybe we should, I don't know. Um, the words are going to come up on the screen here uh, beside us. Okay. Thanks, Morag. And Sadducees came to him, who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife, but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third likewise, and the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the the woman also died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as wife. Jesus said to them, This is not the reason you are wrong. Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. All right, let's pray together. Father, this morning, thank you that we, um, that we come before a God who is for us. Thank you that we come before a God who wants good for us in our relationships, not just romantic relationships, but just friendships, uh, just uh, others that we enjoy uh, doing life with and, and, and just being around. God, thank you that this is by your design, that relationship flows from you. And uh, God, we recognize that we don't need to look far in our city, in our world, to see where relationships can go wrong, where there can be pain, uh, where there can be hurt, uh, both uh, that we have felt that has been caused to us and that we have caused. God, I pray this morning that this would be a place of healing. God, I pray this morning that this would be a place of hope, 
God, I pray that our eyes will be lifted to what uh, relationship can be, uh, to what your intentions are for uh, relationships, and particularly for romantic relationships and ultimately for marriage. God, I pray that you would do a great work in us as, as your people this morning, and that in this that we would see much of the relationship between Jesus and the church and his love uh, for her. pray this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Amen. Now, there's a theme that's kind of been running through the last few talks that we've had in this Mark series, and the theme kind of goes like this. It involves the religious rulers of the day who set out to destroy Jesus. They're out to, to, to absolutely uh, get him. They don't like him. They don't like his popularity. They don't like that he has followers, and they try to go and they try to trip him up in a question. So they scheme, they, they plan, they plot, and then off they go. They go to Jesus, and they ask this question totally on their terms, kind of presenting these scenarios, and then Jesus doesn't end up falling for their traps. Jesus ends up kind of sidestepping it. I don't know if you were a kid and you watched the, uh, the Coyote and Roadrunner cartoons. Anybody remember those? I loved watching those when I was a kid. You know, you had the, the Coyote that had his Acme products, Am I, am, am I the only one that is above the age of 35 in this room right now? Maybe nobody else remembers this, but you have this coyote that has these products, and, and he would come up with these elaborate plans, and he would set these incredible traps, but each and every time he would end up falling into his own trap, and the roadrunner would go flying by. Now, the takeaway from today is not Jesus is like the roadrunner, all right? That is not what I'm trying to show you, but the religious leaders of the day are like the coyote. They do go through all of these pains and great expense and, and planning and plotting to set traps for Jesus, and they end up finding themselves being caught out in their own traps. And that's exactly what we see happening here uh, in Mark chapter 12, verse 18. Once again, the religious leaders, this time the Sadducees. The Sadducees are kind of part of the, the governing sect, okay, the governing group. They, they, they had control over the temple, this, this very holy place in the Jewish culture of the time where the, wor- the, the pinnacle of the place of worship. And they ran the show there. They ran what was going on. And they come to Jesus with yet another question. And in their question, they present their scenario. Now, we need to understand a little bit of the background here to understand the scenario that they're presenting. But in, in their example, in their question, they present the scenario that involves a woman who's married to a man and the man dies. And they say to Jesus, look, under the law of Moses, and the Sadducees were serious about the law of Moses, and what they're referring to then is what we have today is the first five books of the Bible, okay? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. The fancy word for it is the Penta, five Pentateuch, okay? There's your Scrabble word of the day. If you've not learned anything else this morning, I've given you that for your next board game. They loved those five books of the Bible. And in those books of the Bible, God speaks clearly saying that if a woman is married to a man, now culturally for us, this is going to be a bit weird, all right, but, but hear me out on this. If a woman is married to a man and they do not have children and the man, the husband dies, but he has a brother, the brother should be open to stepping in and marrying the woman so that she is not left on her own. Now, I know culturally we think, well, that's, that's weird. That wouldn't happen in our culture. And I acknowledge that. That wouldn't happen in our culture. But we need to understand the heart behind this. God's heart for writing this into the law was that it wasn't happening. 
and that there were widows who were left completely on their own, and God, as a loving father, was not happy about that. So he writes into his law, no, it shouldn't be like that. People should be stepping up to help. And that's why it was in there, because it wasn't happening at first. It was God's heart for these women who were left without any children, without any husband, and left completely on their own. Now, in the Sadducees' scenario, that doesn't happen once, doesn't happen twice, doesn't happen three times, seven times, seven times. Now, I think we should probably ask some questions about the woman who has seven dead husbands, but maybe that's another thing, all right? But they're trying to present this scenario where this, where this woman has seven husbands and they all die, and the question they ultimately arrive to with Jesus is, in heaven, in the resurrection, which the Sadducees didn't even believe in, That's kind of the whole point. They're trying to catch Jesus out in this. They didn't even believe in the resurrection of the dead. They're saying, all right, Jesus, if you're so clever, this woman married seven times to seven of these different brothers. Who is she married to in heaven? That's the scenario. And Jesus' answer is interesting. He doesn't fall for the trap. He shows that he's more wise than they are. And in his answer, he says to them, he says, is this not the reason you're wrong? Because you don't know the scriptures. You don't know the scriptures, and you don't know the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage. So, what are we to take from that? Is there marriage among people, as we know it today, is there marriage like that in heaven? Jesus is clearly saying no. And for us to understand why Jesus is saying that there won't be marriage among people as there is right now in heaven, we need to understand the heart of behind marriage, which is the main thing that I'm really wanting to draw us to today. Now, I remember when I was younger, I remember when I was, I was a teenager, I was in my first relationship, and um, I basically got into the habit of speaking to my girlfriend in Backstreet Boys songs. I mean, I was, I was the master of it. doesn't matter who you are, where you're from, what you did, as long as you love me. I mean, I was really, really was that NSYNC or Backstreet Boys? Johnny, you know, don't look at me like you don't know. <laughs> We'll talk later. It's fine. (laughs) Anyway, I remember having this conversation with her, and I remember us talking about this. She was a new Christian, and and somehow we got onto this topic, and and it was like, no, well, you know, the Bible teaches that in heaven, like if if we're in this dating relationship now, I don't know, I was probably like 15 or 16, and this this relationship goes the distance into marriage, then when we get to heaven, we're not actually going to be married anymore and not missing an opportunity. I looked at her, and I said, if we wouldn't be able to be married in heaven, I don't know if I want to be there. How cheesy is that? Needless to say, that relationship did not last. So um, she probably saw the writing on the wall and was probably wiser for it at that stage. I don't want anything to do with this guy. She, she, she was pretty important in my life, and I knew she was important in my life at that time because I gave her my pager number. I was that guy that had a pager in high school. All right, Do any of you remember that guy in high school? Some of you? Yeah, yeah what's a pager? Thank you. We'll talk later. It's fine. It's fine. Why is it that there's no marriage in heaven? Why, you know, for, if you're here and you're married and you're in a healthy marriage, is that good news to you? Are you thinking like, man, I thought, I thought marriage was God's idea. I thought this was something that we, that we should prize and look forward to and value. If that's the case, why is it not in heaven? Maybe some others of you have been married. And maybe, I don't say this as a joke, genuinely when I say there's no marriage in heaven, maybe some of you in the room actually feel relieved 
Maybe some of you have known marriages in your own family, maybe not your own, but perhaps parents or others in your family, that when I say there is not marriage among people the way we know it today in heaven, you think, oh, my goodness, thank you. I'm actually really glad to hear that. Jesus clearly says it will neither be married or given in marriage in heaven. Why? Well, we need to understand God's heart for marriage. We've, we've called this series Jesus Con or King. And we're looking at the life of Jesus. You know, is he, is he a con man? Did he just trick people? Or did his early followers kind of, when Jesus was put to death on the cross, did he stay dead? And then they just kind of got some paper out and wrote up all these fables about him, these legends about him. Is it basically just a giant legend or con job? Or is Jesus truly the king over all of the earth? Well, you're at a Christian church. You can probably guess where we land on this question. We do believe that Jesus is the king. But not only is Jesus king, Jesus is also a a betrothed king. A word that we would use in our culture would be an engaged king. What do I mean by that? It's that Jesus is engaged. There is a bride that he is waiting for to be united to in marriage. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, the writer of Hebrews says this, says, Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. What is the joy that was set before Jesus that caused him to endure the cross? What is this joy that the writer to the Hebrews is speaking of? The answer to that question is this it was Jesus' future bride. It was his wedding, his union to his future bride. That was the joy that was set before him that led him to continue on with it, to continue on with this plan because of the joy that was set. Before him. In Ephesians chapter 5, Paul tells husbands to love their wives. How? As Christ loved the church. As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her. And he ta- goes on to talk about how husbands should strive to be Christ like in their marriages, how they should strive to serve their wives and even to lay their lives down. For their wives. And summing up all of these instructions to husbands, Paul lands it in this. This is what he says. He says, This mystery is profound. He's talking about the union between a man and a woman, between a husband and a wife, the two of them becoming one flesh in marriage. In the sight of God, it's as though they are one. Now we hear that, and some of you are looking maybe at some married couples in the room and going, Well, I see two people. And yes, we do, but there's a mystery of marriage in God. That for married couples, for a man and for a woman, in the sight of God, they are seen as one, one flesh together as husband and wife. And Paul says the mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. It refers to Christ and the church, which brings us to the meaning and the purpose of all human marriage. The meaning and the purpose of all human marriage is to be a pointer to the upcoming marriage between Jesus as the perfect husband and the church as his bride that he laid his life down to redeem. That is the meaning and the purpose of marriage, is to be a pointer to the upcoming marriage of Jesus and his bride. That is why we will not be given in marriage in heaven. 
That is why Natalia and I, although we enjoy our marriage here on earth, in heaven, we will not be married in the same way that we are today because the marriage of the church to the church's perfect husband will happen there. So we won't need this earthly marriage. Does that mean that I won't know Natalia? I won't know who my wife on earth is? No, I believe absolutely I will know her. But our marriage, I won't need that anymore because I will have the perfect union of the church as the bride of Christ with her perfect husband in heaven. Now, when I stand up here and I say that Jesus is our perfect husband, Jesus is our perfect example of what a husband should be. Firstly, I want you to know that I I mean it. I'm going to talk in a few minutes about uh, how we need to be careful around this because of the way that our culture has approached the topic of masculinity and how that spills over into relationships and indeed even into marriage. But some of you, particularly those of you that are here this morning and you're thinking, you know what, Rich, that sounds great that Jesus is my perfect husband. Maybe some of the guys in them are like, that's a little bit weird. Didn't really come here looking to marry Jesus this morning. But I really do want you to know that part of being the church is being part of the bride of Christ and being joined with him, even if the language of it might seem peculiar to us. But to others in the room, you might be thinking, well, that sounds, that sounds really nice, but it doesn't really help me today. Maybe there are some of you here this morning who, we're, you know, we're a young church, aren't we, in the city? We've got a lot of younger single people in this church. It's a joy. It's a privilege for us to have that in this church. We absolutely love it. But maybe there's frustration. Maybe there's feelings of loneliness. Maybe disappointment in God. Maybe some of you who are here and you're thinking, God, look, I've, I've not compromised on this. I could go out and just meet somebody who doesn't love you. But I know I shouldn't do that. I want to be with somebody who does love you, and I just, that just hasn't happened yet. God, it hurts. It really hurts. How does this truth that Jesus is our perfect husband, how does this have a positive impact on life today? I want to invite my wife, Natalia, to come up and to talk a little bit um, about this because she's going to be able to approach it in a bit of a way that's going to be different um, than what I can. So um, could we welcome Natalia? Hi, my name is Natalia. I'm married to Rich. We have two kids, Zara and Joshua, and I, yeah, I'm on the leadership team at the church, and I also work as a family doctor. So all those things keep me busy. He keeps me busy. I do, I do indeed. And we'll, uh, we will have been married for 10 years uh, yeah. this August, August 2nd, yeah. and um, yeah, First, like, it's a privilege being married to you. I really mean that. Okay. Absolutely love you. Right. Natalia is an incredibly patient woman. Okay? She is an incredibly patient woman uh, with me. As I'm talking about this, you know, about Jesus as the perfect husband, like just even day to day in the context of marriage and in relationship, what, what does, does that change anything? Does it, does it mean anything? What, what do you think when, when, when you hear those words? So... Um... This may surprise some of you to know that Rich isn't perfect. Surprise! <laughs> and therefore it's is not, not a perfect. And therefore is not the perfect husband. So for yeah. so for for me in marriage, it looks that that it's not. It's wanting your husband to be Christ-like, and I believe if you're a Christian, you're called to marry someone that is a Christian, because the Bible says not to be unequally yoked. So it's wanting a guy that's Christ-like, but not expecting him to be Jesus. And I think it can be easy in marriage, and I definitely fall into it to. To expect too much of somebody and to not have grace for that person in that case. And when you're expecting that person to be Christ, you're not looking to Jesus to be Christ. So you're, you're looking to 
your husband to be your savior when when it's you know his his position is to point us towards Jesus and to love us like Christ loved the church but ultimately the same in marriage the same in friendships the same in your job the same in money anything if you're looking for that that thing that person that object to be your savior you're unfulfilled with it you're not satisfied with it it's only Jesus that can fill that longing and um, also it's not good for the relationship what would you say to, uh, as I was saying a few minutes ago, if there are any that are feeling disappointment or hurt or frustration kind of in this area because they feel like, God, I've done, I've done what you've asked me to do, but it just isn't happening yet. What would you, what would you say to them? I'm not sure what you're asking. In terms of people that might be frustrated because they're waiting. Well, either in marriage, maybe perhaps in that marriage wasn't what they expected it to be, or they're waiting for marriage to someone who loves Jesus. Mm-hmm. And it just, the person hasn't come along yet, or they haven't met them, they're feeling disappointment in God. When I say, Jesus is your perfect husband, it might be, hey, that's great, but it doesn't really change anything. What, what would you say to that? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I've, I've had many friends who either have married a Christian person who has been very unchristlike, and that can lead to a lot of disappointment. And even if your husband is a good man and, and still Christ-like, you know, there's still disappointments in marriage. But also, if you're not married... And you're longing for that marriage, and, and God's not giving it to you for whatever reason, or not giving, putting that person in your own path. It's just trusting God that, that He knows better, that His timing is best. And he, even if that means it's, it's not a marriage here on earth, that the, the ultimate, the best marriage, the perfect husband, is coming. Mm. And that, that will truly satisfy us then, but it also can truly satisfy us now. That it's not that we have to be without now. That on earth, I believe we can be. You know, the Bible says, "If you're thirsty, come to me. I will, I will give you drink." And there's the on earth, we can truly be fulfilled. Mm-hmm. Excellent. Thanks, babe. Okay. Thank you very much. All right. I want to. Um, I want to shift a little bit as we uh, as we move on. Um, because as we're talking about Jesus as our perfect husband, I think we need to recognize that. If we were to go around this room and, and ask people to kind of share stories of their experiences of marriage, whether it be their own, as Natalia's saying, even in our marriage, there are challenging times. There are times when it's like, man, we just need to, be, we really need to be gracious with each other, patient with each other. We're not always perfect at that. And anybody who's here and is married would say the same thing if they're being honest. But there would also be stories of, of immense pain, of immense hurt, of immense betrayal. We don't need to look far in our culture to, to see that. Um, so I want to shift a little bit, and what I'm going to do, because this is something that's very, very dear to my heart, a lot of what I'm going to be saying over the next few minutes is, is largely going to be aimed at the men in the room. Um, I'm not going to uh, say it in a way that it makes, I don't want any of the women in the room to think that, they're, that this doesn't apply to them. Um, but as a man, I feel that I've got a bit more experience with this and being able to address men, because I know a bit more about how um, I, as a guy, have walked this, what I've walked well, and also certainly what I've not walked well in, uh, in this area. Uh, let me refer you to a Globe and Mail article that was, uh, that was just in the paper this past week. There's an article on uh, the Toronto Maple Leafs. If you've ever been to a, a game of the Air Canada Centre in Toronto, they have something called the Ice Girls, if you've been to a game there. And there was an article uh, that said this about the Ice Girls. It says, dressing women in tight clothing and parading them around the Air Canada Centre is insulting to the Maple Leafs fan base, which, uh, which is 33% female. It's also insulting to the ice girls themselves, who are athletes in their own right, 
a combination of figure staters and hockey players, why aren't they given a chance to showcase their skills rather than just their curves? I think this is asking quite a good question. I think the answer is simply this. It's because men in our culture don't want them to. Men in our culture would be much more content watching the women with their curves on the ice than seeing them use their figure skating or their hockey or whatever other area of athleticism that they are skilled in on display. And why is that? That is because for us as a culture, we see, guys, we see masculinity as being something that is about us. We sit at the center of it. It's about our self-gratification. It's about our reputation. It's about our power. That's how we see Masculinity. If you don't believe me, listen to this. This was in the New York Times this week. These aren't Christian writers, I'm quoting. Okay? There are people in our culture that are recognizing this as well, and they're not necessarily coming at it from a faith perspective. This was in the New York Times this week. Too many boys are trapped in the same suffocating, outdated model of masculinity, where manhood is measured in strength, where there is no way to be vulnerable without being emasculated where manliness is about having power over others. They're trapped, and they don't even have the language to talk about how they feel being trapped because the language that exists to discuss the full range of human emotion is still viewed as sensitive and feminine. I could not agree more. So rather than masculinity being taught as something that should be based on love and on service and on care of others. Men in our culture are taught and are conditioned to think that masculinity is about them. Guys, the masculinity ultimately is about us and how we are seen and the power and the control that we have. I don't have the quote to come up on the screen, but the same article later went on to say, we don't have a better model of masculinity in our culture. And I would say, yes, we absolutely do. And his name is Jesus. The world has the best example, not just another example, but the best and the perfect example of masculinity. And for Jesus, for the very Son of God, he didn't even place himself at the center of it. It wasn't about him and the way that he was seen and his identity and his power. It was about the love for his bride. It was the laying down of his own life for the good of another. And if you're here and you're in Christ, you're part of the church, not just Grace City Church, but the church, you're part of the bride of Christ. He was laying his life down for you and for me. We are part of the joy that was set before him in the greatest example of masculinity that the world has ever seen. Jesus Christ laying his life down on the cross for his bride. But we so don't see it that way. We so see masculinity in our culture with the male, the guy at the very center. And it's all about the self. I went on to one of the websites of a leading men's magazine that I won't, I won't name. You'll probably be able to guess what it was. And I scrolled through the different headings that were on the front page of the website this week. This is what they said. Four different things. One, Donald Glover knows the secret to wearing a leather jacket. Two, Kanye West wore the perfect socks for spring. Three, the best hangover cure is a cheap face mask that numbs your brain and also causes you to subscribe to the magazine, I'm pretty sure. And number four, the best sex lube for every level of freakiness. 
Like this? <laughs> like this is our level. This is our standard for masculinity. Leather jackets and socks and lube. This is it. Like guys, seriously, can we, can we not do better than this? And where does this end up going? A jacket and socks, a new phone, a new car, a new temporary pleasure with a woman, and then a different woman, and then a different woman. And how if we ended up there before it was objects, before it was things, before it was, it was man-made, created stuff, and then suddenly in this mix we see people. So often women made in the image of God, immeasurable in their worth, immeasurable in their value. And so many men in our culture have an easier time committing to a phone contract than they do to a woman. How has this crept in? Where does this come from? Praise God, the Bible gives us the answer to that question. One of the best examples that we can see of this is none other than King David in the Bible. We did a series a while ago called Seven Weeks, Seven Antiheroes, and we did a much longer talk on King David. If this is of interest to you, get on the website and listen to that talk, because I went into a lot more detail then. But here's the gist of it. King David, he's this king. He's ruling and reigning over Israel. And he's out on his palace roof one day, and as he's walking around, like the palace would have sat above the other buildings. The palaces were often built kind of on elevated areas so that all of the subjects of the kingdom, they knew where the palace was. It was seen as, as kind of a statement of security, that they had a leader, that they had a king. And King David was a good king. I mean, he was a good king. And he's up one day, he's walking around on his roof, and he looks out, and he looks over the roofs in his kingdom And he sees a beautiful woman bathing on the roof of her building. And he looks. And he continues to look. And then he sends a servant to go and to to fetch her. Like a toy. Bring her to me. Fetch her. And she comes into the palace. And as you keep reading the story, they sleep together. Her name is Bathsheba. We're not given a lot of the detail in it. We don't know whether Bathsheba was a willing participant in this, but I think we should have a massive amount of sympathy for her because she was a subject in King David's kingdom. And the king has invited you to the palace. What do you say? No, I'm a married woman. I can't, I, I can't. I mean, maybe she could have said that. Maybe she should have. We simply don't know. But what we know is that David was the person in authority. He was the person with power. And there's no doubt that he was abusing it. And as we keep reading that story, Bathsheba becomes pregnant. And then David, I used to work in political communications. David starts going on this political spin. He has to spin the story. I've got to find this way to cover up this political scandal that will erupt. If the kingdom finds out that I've made a married woman pregnant, I'm done. What is my kingdom going to think of me? This great king, King David. I know what I'll do. I'll arrange for her husband to come back from battle to make it look like she slept with her husband, and then she looks like she's pregnant by her husband. Well, that doesn't work. The husband comes back, and he says, no, I'm not, I'm not going to just go and enjoy an evening like that with my wife while my comrades are out on the battlefield. What, what does that say about what I think of my comrades who are laying their lives down right now? And you've called me back in, so he doesn't do it. 
David has to go into another level of spin. What does he do? He has Bathsheba's husband killed. Well, problem solved. You're the king. You can do that. Problem solved, right, until he's confronted about it. And Psalm 51 is written out of a place of being confronted with his sin. And in Psalm 51, David addresses the reason why this all went wrong. The reason his view of masculinity went so wrong. And he hits it right on the head. He says this in Psalm chapter 51. He says, Create in me a clean heart, O God. Oh, I remember, I remember being the Christian kid around the campfire at Christian camp. And the fire was raging, and the dude had his guitar out, and, and, and the guys were sitting by the girls, and hormones are running crazy, and somebody strikes a, create in me a clean heart, oh God. You know that song? Let me show you how David meant it. Create in me a clean heart, oh God. Renew a right spirit in me. Don't cast me away from your presence because of what I've done. He wasn't singing stupid kumbaya beside a campfire. He was grieved. He was broken inside because of his sin. And what is the source of his sin? Where does he place it? Where did it all go wrong? Well, it went wrong in his eyes. It went wrong when he went out and he walked on the roof and he had too long of a stare and he should have found an accountability partner. He should have found somebody to say, hey, can we log this software in on both of our laptops so that we know what websites we're both looking at and can we get together over coffee and talk about it once or twice a week and all these things? No! All that stuff may be helpful, but the source of it, David says, is the heart. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit in me. The tragic thing about the Me Too movement, as helpful of a discussion as it's prompting right now in our culture, and I say, look, good. These are good things to discuss. The tragic thing about it, though, is that it doesn't go far enough. It says we need a new way of thinking. We need to change our mindset. The Bible tells us that we need a new heart. We need a new heart. Some of you have been told you have a dirty mind. I've been told that. I've thought that at times. Some of you know my own story in this. The gospel tells us that we have dirty hearts. And we need to be given a new heart. And here's the incredible thing about King David's story. He cries out, create in me a clean heart, O God. And you know what God does? You know what God delights to do? He gives him what he asks for. David, the adulterer, the murderer, the objectifier of women, is given a clean heart by God, and he is not cast away from the presence of God. What grace, what grace, what hope we have in God. Some of you in this room, this is hitting so close to home because some of you know what it means to be on the receiving end of objectification. Now, statistically, and and, and on the whole, I would be addressing most of the women in the room right now, but this is not something that is exclusive to women. There would be men in this room as well that have experienced that. It may not be in the context of a romantic or sexual relationship. It may just be somebody who's just had power or authority over you, and you have been objectified for them to show their power, to show their authority. The gospel tells us that Jesus Christ on the cross. He was beaten. He was whipped. He had a crown of thorns placed in his head. He did all of that for us. 
But you know what else? You know what that all includes? Jesus was objectified. He was objectified. The religious leaders of the day, the ones that crucified him, saw Jesus as a means for them to display their power. That is the very definition of objectification. They treated him like a thing to show how powerful they were. If you are here this morning and you know the pain and the hurt of being objectified, you come before a God and a Savior, Jesus Christ, who gets it because he has walked this himself. Bring your pain. Bring your burden to him. Lay it at the foot of the cross. Lay it at the feet of the one who understands because he's walked it himself. There are others in the room this morning that feel this very personally because you know that you are one who has contributed to this. You know that you are, some of the guys, an objectifier of women. You treat women at times, whether it be online or at university or the workplace or wherever it may be, as a means for your own satisfaction. And maybe it seems quite, maybe it's just innocent flirting because it just feels good. It's just nice being wanted. Guys, I get it. I get it. That marked so much of my life, of wanting just to pursue just enough until I knew that I could, and then I would just totally back off because that just felt good. Treating women as a means for me to feel better about myself. And you know that you are a contributor to this. You know when I read these articles, you're thinking, man, I'm, I'm part of the guilty party. You know what? On the cross, Jesus paid the penalty for your objectifying of others. The penalty that you deserve and that I deserve. And friends, believe me when I say I have walked this and I deserve it. Jesus took that on himself at the cross. And there is grace for you. There is grace for you. And you might feel this morning like, man, it just, I, I struggle with this. I just can't break free of it. I would say again, come to Christ. Take some time. Read First and Second Corinthians. There's some crazy sexual stuff going on in the church in Corinth. And when Paul writes to them, he doesn't say to them, you just need to, you just need to fix this and stop doing this and, and just sort it out and just kind of going at them like that. He reminds them who they are in Christ. Do you not know that you are the temple of the Holy Spirit? That God wants to take up residence inside of you. That's why we shouldn't be doing these things. It's not just because the Bible says, no, don't do it. No, It's because Jesus in his grace wants to come and he wants to live inside of us. And there are things that are inside of us that are not fitting for the palace of a king. And the conviction that you feel right now, you mustn't feel shame right now. But the conviction that you may feel right now, you need to know that that's something that the Holy Spirit is doing in you. And that's a gift of grace from God. And don't miss an opportunity this morning to come and to lay that down at his feet. I want to close by saying this to the women in the room this morning. If you are here and you have a relationship with Jesus, this is your identity. You are a daughter of God. And you are loved by him immeasurably. No matter what your experience of fathering or of men or of relationships, whatever it has been, you are a daughter of God with immeasurable value, and worth. So great that Jesus would lay his life down for you. That is who you are. Rich, I just don't, I don't feel like that right now. God's faithfulness is not based on your feelings. It's not. You feel whatever you want right now. It doesn't change the truth that you are a daughter of God if you are in Christ. 
women in the room who are here this morning and you're thinking that this is very, this, this hurts, this is tough. Came to church to feel good this morning. I don't feel really good right now, Rich. This morning you can become part of the family of God. A daughter of God. For all of eternity. And it means no matter what your experience of this has been, no matter what hurt or pain you may be carrying, you don't need to carry that alone. You can lay that at the foot of the cross and say, God, help me in this. Help me to know my true identity in you. I don't want to be defined by what happened. I don't want to be defined by what is happening. I want to be defined by who I am in you. I'm going to invite Joe to come and get set up. We're going to uh, sing.